you're new with us, we're working our way through Luke's gospel, and we come to Luke chapter 15, which has been called by many the heart of the third gospel, as Luke's great theme of God's love for sinful people is put on display in three consecutive stories. If you're familiar with the Bible, you're probably familiar with these stories, to be sure, and if you're not, it's my great joy to uh, teach them to you over the next two weeks. We'll look mainly at the first two stories today, uh, but we'll consider uh, the third a little bit uh, along the way as there are th- really three stories uh, in a bundle. And so uh, let me read the text. I want to read all of it uh, before we, we pray and then jump in. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to of... hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came, he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what about what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this this son of yours came, 
who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And this is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beauty of Luke chapter 15. Open up our eyes to behold wonderful things from it. And change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there are lots of movies these days, TV shows, books that focus on finding someone who is lost. Maybe you've watched The the Martian, where Matt Damon is lost on Mars for a year uh, before being picked up and brought home. Or Sandra Bullock, who was lost in space in the movie Gravity. Or Tom Hanks, who was lost on an island in Castaway, with his only friend being his volleyball. If you're into Stranger Things, Will gets lost in the upside-down world. Then there was simply the show that was called several years ago, Lost. And here we, we watched a group of people survive a plane crash on a remote island, just wanting to be rescued. And then the viewers learn later as the story goes on that they're really dead, and the show gets really weird. Kimberly and I went to Hawaii one time, and, and I wanted to go look for the set on, of, of Lost, and she thought that was a really dumb, boring idea, but we did it. And we almost got lost looking for the set of Lost, and, uh, but we found it, which was really a, a cool story. Uh, it seems that people throughout generations have identified with this theme, Lost and Found. And we deal with that all the time. Things that are valuable that we can't find creates a crisis, a lot of drama, and then when it's found, we all uh, celebrate. And here in these three parables, Jesus shows us something that is valuable that's lost and how there's great rejoicing when that valuable thing is found. And there's nothing worse, as Jesus is really getting at his point here, nothing worse than being spiritually lost. And nothing greater than being found. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. This is the main idea of the chapter, just as there is joy when a shepherd, a lady, or a father recovers a loss, so there is joy in heaven when one lost person repents. This this, this chapter is amazing. It shows us that God is seeking lost people, and he rejoices when they're found. Now, before we dive into these first two stories, let me just sort of look at the whole for a moment. Three, three big themes that we'll look at in the next two weeks. I'll just highlight these quickly. The first I've already mentioned is the theme of being lost and found. All right, verse six, he mentions this uh, regarding the story of the lost sheep. Verse nine, uh, in the parable of the lost coin. And then verse 24, verse 32, we read of these words in the story of the lost sons. Now, if you've ever lost anything, you can identify with this. Maybe you're the person that is habitually losing everything. You have a PhD, but you don't know where your keys are. <laughs> you can't find the remote control. Um, I was in meetings all week in Richmond, and there were very long meetings, and that's what I'm blaming my ignorance on, at least, uh, as I walked out the, the Thursday morning, and I couldn't find my car. And so I called a buddy, hey, hey come get me. I've got to call the police. I think someone has stole my car. And then it dawned on me that I parked on the other side of, of the building, and, and there my car was. Um, 
and, and now I'm a pastor. Yeah, it's, uh, um, maybe you lose your wallet. Maybe you've lost your kids before. Hopefully you found them. Um, my, maybe uh, my parents one time lost me in a, in a Kmart in Detroit. And, and that was quite a, quite a, a scene. Now, I think all the Kmarts are lost uh, in the world, but um, one time we lost our pet. If you've ever went through that, you can identify with uh, the, the, the crisis. Uh, we, we lost our dog Titus one time. Fortunately, we found him, but you would have thought it was a national crisis, uh, calling in the FBI to rescue uh, our little schnauzer. Well, our Lord finds people. He finds what's most valuable in the world, people. He, he doesn't do what some people do, like they just put up a sign when they lose their pet, lost dog. That usually doesn't motivate me to go out searching. Jesus doesn't just put a sign up. He's actively, right now, seeking sinners. And this is really encouraging for us as we think about reaching our neighbors, reaching our friends, when, when we don't see a lot of fruit in evangelism, we know that we're not working alone, right? We're just really joining Jesus in what he came to do. Remember the kind of theme of Luke's gospel, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. And so he hasn't stopped, and he does this in a variety of ways. He, he is relentless in his pursuit of lost people. We have a couple of church planters I was with not long ago, Ben, who's in D.C., and Adam, who's in Baltimore. Both of them have stories that are just fascinating and how creative even Jesus is in saving sinners. Ben Polka was a drug dealer with three other guys, got held at gunpoint, had all his stuff taken, and uh, was scared to death and did the only thing he knew to do, and that was to go to Blockbuster Video and go to the religion section. And he rented all the Left Behind movies, uh, which I don't recommend, but he did. And, uh, and then he goes to a church service, and all three of his buddies become Christians, and now that guy is a pastor on Capitol Hill. Or Adam, who grew up in a Muslim family, is now a pastor in Baltimore. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. He's still saving people in 2022. And he calls us to go into this world and join them in this work. So that's a main theme, right? The lost and found. Second one is this theme of repentance. This is how salvation is experienced. You see verse seven, Jesus says, there is joy when one sinner repents. Verse 10, that there is joy before the angels over one sinner who repents. I like how the CEB, the Common English Bible, translates verse seven in a more of a paraphrase way, but it's helpful when you think about what is repentance. Like this is the means of salvation. This is the pathway to joy. It says, in the same way, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life. And that's what it means to repent. It means to, to turn from your sin, to submit your life to the lordship of Jesus Christ, to change both heart and life. And the third theme is this theme of rejoicing and celebrating. God seeks sinners diligently and when he finds them, he rejoices. Now this text is very straightforward in what it teaches about humanity. You're either lost or found. There's no middle. You're either dead or alive. And I know those descriptions are very offensive in modern day society, but that is the biblical language. The good news is you don't have to stay there. 
<laughs> the good news is you can experience this salvation. That's what Jesus is offering here at the table to the sinners and tax collectors and religious leaders, and that's what he offers us today. We don't have to stay where we're at. We don't, we don't have to stay lost. We can repent and experience the joy of this salvation. So those are the themes we, we look at as we jump now into just the first two parables. I'd like for us to look at the audience, verses one and two, the parables, and then thirdly, some, some applications. So first, the audience. Verses one and two, we see that you got basically two groups of people that set the context. The context is important because it, it triggers Jesus telling these stories, and it helps us to interpret the stories. So we, we don't need to pass over verse one and two too quickly. It, it, we've seen this sort of thing uh, previously. Remember when a guy comes to Jesus and he says, who is my neighbor? And that triggers the telling of uh, the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Or a few weeks ago in Luke 14, the guy says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And that triggers a story that Jesus tells about the great, great banquet. Likewise here, the context is, is, is going to provoke Jesus to tell these stories. Jesus is a master teacher. Just amazing. And so you've got tax collectors and sinners. That's basically the, the publicly scandalous group of people that Jesus is hanging with. We've seen them mentioned together already uh, in Luke 5, verse 30, in Luke 7, verse 34, tax collectors and sinners. Um, they were those who were, were uh, hated and looked down upon, of course, by all of the religious elite. We've looked at tax collectors already when we looked at the story of uh, Levi, but the Jewish people hated them because they sold their souls to the Romans. Their testimony was not received in court. It was an insult to call someone a tax collector. Chrysostom, the old uh, church father, preacher, uh, said the tax collector is the personification of licensed violence legal sin, and specious greed. I liken them to the mafia uh, previously. Some simply summarize the tax collector as the sinfully rich and socially ostracized. Now, previously we've seen that Jesus has come for the poor and for those who have nothing. Well, here we see that Jesus also came for the wealthy, even the corrupt wealthy. And he's eating with them. That was a no-no to the religious folks. You notice their language is very us versus them. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Sinners is just uh, a generic term, general term, but the, the connotation the, is, is that this was known public sin. He was with those who were known for, for public sin, thievery, drunkenness, prostitution, and so on. And they're all drawing near to hear Jesus teach, and you get the idea from the language that this was the regular ministry of Jesus. I wonder what your weekly ministry looks like. Do you have any occasions where unbelievers are gathering to hear you, to chat with you, to hang with you? They wanna hear him. Remember Jesus, we, we left off last week, he who has ears, let him hear. And here you find that some people are listening, and often responsive hearers are found in surprising places. They're not always the people you think would be hearing. The religious people are not hearing Jesus. They've got ears, but they're not hearing. And here we've got this other group who represent the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the, the prodigal son. That's who the, the tax collectors and sinners represent. 
those who have headed for the far country, as in the story of, of the lost son. The Pharisees is group number two, and they represent that elder brother that we'll look at next week. And the story is showing us in the parable of those two sons that you can be lost in irreligion or lost in religion. You can be lost as a Pharisee or you can be lost as a hedonist. And Jesus has come for both. That's the good news. But I think that the parables are really, as we get to the end of chapter 15, directed toward mainly the Pharisees. As Jesus is trying to clarify and defend his ministry. Why is he hanging with this group of people? And they don't like it. And that's why we see uh, that they are those who are grumbling at Jesus, verse 2. What a contrast the Pharisees grumbling with the joy of heaven woven throughout this chapter. Grumbling is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> grumbling is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's actually a terrible sin. Just look at the history of Israel and see how terrible it is. Why are they grumbling? Well, they don't like the company that Jesus is keeping. And Luke seems to admire this about Jesus. He welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Notice how they say, this man. This man does this. Look at this man. He doesn't just minister to sinners. He, he doesn't just hand out literature to the tax collector. He welcomes them. He's with them. This is not like a pastor working, you know, uh, talking to an unbeliever in his, in his nice little study. Or even in a coffee shop. If you saw your pastor in a coffee shop ministering to uh, some scoundrels, you'd say, that's my pastor. It's like he is at the frat house. It's like he's in Vegas. And you see Jesus and you're like, what's he doing here? He's seeking and saving the lost. That's what he's doing there. As one writer says, let's not get it twisted. It is clear that this, uh, in this text that the moral influence is from Jesus to sinners, not the reverse. And see, that was the problem, right? Like we're taught in the scriptures to not walk with, with, with sinners, not to make company with those who will drag us down and lead us astray, but that's not happening with Jesus. You see, to be this kind of witness, you need a real strength of holiness that you won't compromise, that you won't let your guard down, that if you are with them, you're not like them. You love them, right? You need a strength of holiness, and you need a big heart of compassion. And I would put forward that's what Jesus is doing here. He has no sin, but he's not isolated from sinners. And that's very fundamental to our witness, isn't it? So that's the audience. Now we got these two parables we'll look at. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. A very common uh, a story or a common image of, of God and uh, of our Savior is that of a shepherd. And Jesus says, or Luke says, so he told them this parable. He says parable singular, but it's really three parables, as I said, in one. The so shows us that it's, it's, it's following this, this uh, discussion about why Jesus is hanging with the wrong crowd. So he told them this parable. And he says, what man of you? Right? So it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Later, what woman of you, verse 8, an argument. For, if, if this man, this human being, this, this basic shepherd is, would do this, how much more will the great shepherd? And if a lady will seek diligently this lost coin, how much more will the Savior? What man of you, he says, having a hundred sheep, 
if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. As I said, this is a great metaphor for God. We think about Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Especially important, I think, in this contest is Ezekiel 34, which you uh, may have read this morning. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Uh, let me refresh your memory on Ezekiel. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 34, I think Jesus is fulfilling this great image of a Davidic uh, king and shepherd. It says, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep, so I, so uh, sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Goes on to talk more and more just about this idea of the shepherd seeking the lost sheep. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. I'm searching among the nations for these lost sheep. And he says here, the shepherd will leave the 99. I don't know if you ever read that and thought, I don't know if that's good stewardship. <laughs> what happened to the other 99? Did they get lost? Well, I think it's another uh, place where we don't want to press these parables uh, so hard. Jesus is making kind of overarching points. It would be no problem for a good shepherd to leave the 99 to the care of another. Um, that's really not the point, is it? The idea here is that Jesus will go over the hills into the open country looking for the one lost sheep. As John 10 says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. You notice the persistency of the language too. He does not quit until he finds it. He's successful. And we have not just a picture of Jesus, we have a picture of our condition apart from Jesus, don't we? Apart from him, we are lost in the wasteland. We're left alone in the rocky hills. We're desperate with no food, vulnerable to attack. We need the shepherd to come get us. And that's what makes the gospel so amazing. As a contemporary song says, there's no shadow you won't light up mountain you won't climb up coming after me. Our shepherd through blood, sweat, and tears has climbed the rugged terrain to bring us home. Ambrose, church father, said, that sheep that is strayed in Adam is lifted on Christ. It's a beautiful picture. And we know that Jesus has done even more than this. He's actually given up his own life for his sheep, hasn't he? Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray and have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I'm sure Jesus has the cross on his mind as he tells this parable. We keep reading of these Jerusalem statements. He knows where he's going, and that is how he rescues lost sheep. Every lost sinner that trusts in the crucified Christ will be carried home safely to God. So little lamb, rest on your shepherd. Rest on this crucified Christ today. What a beautiful picture in verse five. He puts the lost sheep on his shoulders. At sacrifice to himself, he, he lifts up the weak and wounded sheep and puts it on his shoulders and carries it through the rugged terrain. They tell me a full-grown sheep weighs more than 100 pounds. Some of you might wanna add this to your workout pro program. That would make squats very interesting. 
uh, or a farmer's carries, you know, we're going to do sheep carries. It's a picture of, of care, of sacrifice, of intimacy. He can feel the sheep breathing. We are that near to our Christ. He has rescued us and he is walking with us in, in, in our weakness and our weariness. And this, this picture has been a, a great encouragement to the church throughout her history. In fact, three of the earliest artistic images of Jesus are images of a shepherd carrying a sheep. At least in three catacombs in Rome are these ancient pictures of Jesus carrying a sheep. And that's because that persecuted church found great comfort in this picture. Jesus will carry you home, believer. That's the only hope we have. Jesus fulfills Psalm 28, verse 9. As David said, O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And Jesus will not let one go. Not one. And notice verse 5, the second part of verse 5. He's not grumbling or berating this animal. Instead, we find the shepherd rejoicing. Jesus rejoices in the salvation of sinners. He calls others to rejoice. It's like his joy is contagious. No one is rejoicing more than him. And he calls us to share in that joy. As we see in verse 7, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And there Jesus means the self-righteous. Those who think they don't need repentance. This is what Jesus came to do. He came to save lost sheep and when he does, there's great joy in heaven. Bernard of Clairvaux put it well when he says, the tears of the repentance form the wine of angels. There will be joy. God rejoices. Heaven rejoices. And this is what we should be excited about as well when we see people come to faith in Jesus Christ. And there is a contagious joy that happens. I don't know if you've ever experienced this kind of interpersonal thing when, when something makes you laugh, you immediately turn to somebody else to see if they're laughing and, and, you, and you want them to be laughing with you. And there are certain people I like to watch funny uh, programs with because they make me laugh harder. I, like, I, I laugh more at them than at, at the show. Yeah. And Jesus rejoices and he looks to us and says, are you rejoicing too? You ought to be rejoicing at the phenomenal news of the gospel. The lost sheep. Secondly, the lost coin. This parable makes the same point. It's, it's shorter, so you'll be happy about that. And Jesus uses, I find it very interesting, a lady to illustrate this point. That makes perfect sense to me because it seems, at least in my limited experience, women can find stuff much better uh, than guys. This lady is searching like your mom searches. Not like how your kids search. Kids are like, Mom, where's my, where's my thing at? And Mom always knows where it is. She knows where you lost it the last time. And, um, and the kid looks for like 30 seconds. I can't find it. I can't find it. And Mom just goes, here it is. They, they know how to search. And here, this lady's lost her, her coin, right? It's, it's very important. It equals a Daenerys. That's a, a day's wage for an average worker. Like if we lose a penny, we may not go into this great hunt, but if we lose 100 uh, that's, that's a problem where your paycheck or something along those lines. And here, I think there's a kind of a nuanced emphasis, uh, even though we would definitely say the sheep is valuable, I think here the emphasis is on 
the fact that this lady is searching so diligently because this is very valuable. And I think we can make a connection here that God values people. Don't doubt that God values you. Even in our lostness, we're not a nobody to God. She finds this valuable coin and she says, there it is, I found it. Rejoice with me. And he, tells, he says, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. She calls her friends together, says, let's party. There's much rejoicing. And this is what Jesus is doing. The Pharisees are grumbling here at the dinner table. This man's hanging with the sinners and tax collectors. What's he doing with, in doing that? He's finding his lost sheep. He's finding his lost coin. He, cre- he takes great delight in doing it. And he invites us to enjoy that salvation as well. Three life-changing lessons before we close. First, this text is teaching us about repentance. The path to life and joy is through repentance and faith. If you hear repentance as a bad word or a negative word, I want you to, to see it more fully. It's really an invitation to life. It's a great text in Acts 11 after Peter preaches to Cornelius and they're having a discussion about whether the gospel's for the Gentiles or for the nations, for the world. And when Peter tells the story of Cornelius, Luke ends it like this. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. You see, repentance is a pathway to life. When we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ and say, I'm tired of living my way, in my rebellion, in my self-centeredness, in my idolatry, you can have it all, I put my life in your hands. That's where life begins to, to take place. It's the pathway to life and joy. Then we can sing songs like, my chains fell off, my heart went free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Repentance. Secondly, and I'd like to linger here for a moment, evangelism. Jesus pursues the lost diligently and calls his disciples to do the same. Recovering a lost sinner, we see here, takes diligent effort, just like the lady. Luke emphasizes that she sought this coin diligently. And so this is not easy. And I think there's several principles here for faithful evangelism as Jesus is is, is urging us to work with him as co-laborers in seeing people come to know uh, Christ for salvation. I'll just mention six really quick. First of all, time. How much time do you spend with lost people? God doesn't want us to isolate ourselves from unbelievers. Jesus is not doing that, is he? In fact, Jesus receives the moniker friend of tax collectors and sinners because he regularly associated with them. Would anyone ever call you that? Christians have been called a number of things. <laughs> I know I have. But this is what they call Jesus. And sometimes responsive hearers are found in surprising places. And we experience that when we spend time with them. And so let's spend concentrated time in pursuing those who are far from God. A lot of people have a negative view of evangelism, even inside the church. It's very prevalent. 
the Barna Research Group, who does a lot of research on various things related to the Christian faith, had a, a study and an article uh, entitled, Almost Half of Practicing Christian Millennials Say Evangelism is Wrong. And this is what was quoted from the research. Almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus and that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. Millennials in particular feel equipped to share their faith with others. For instance, almost three quarters say that they know how to respond when someone raises questions about the faith and that they are gifted in sharing their faith with other people. This is higher than any other generational group, which may say a little bit more about millennials' uh, view of themselves, but that's another discussion. Um, but here's, here's my point, don't get sidetracked. Uh, despite this, many millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. Almost half agree, at least somewhat, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Let me put all that together. They think this is the best thing that could happen to a person and that they're equipped to do it, equipped even better than the previous generations, but it's wrong to do it. Well, that is very out of step with New Testament Christianity, isn't it? You see, we need passages like this to remind us of the priority of evangelism. Now, second little subpoint on evangelism, wisdom. We need wisdom as we seek to reach lost people. As we think about Jesus here dining with sinners and tax collectors, let's, let's make sure again that we're very careful about this. We're not going places that would cause us to sin. If you have a particular uh, weakness in an area, then you need to stay out of those contexts, right? So we need, we need wisdom as we engage. We need wisdom on where to go. And that's a good thing for us to pray as we finish here in a moment. The third emphasis is on evangelism here is truth. I think there's a great picture here of Jesus with these individuals of both relationships and a call to repentance. Because on the one hand, we could just hang with people all the time, but never bring the truth to them. And Jesus has this beautiful blend in his witness, doesn't he? <clears throat> As we hang with our friend, at some point we need to ask them, like, what's keeping you from becoming a Christian, my friend? What, what would keep you right now, this day, and becoming a Christian. It's a blend of relationship and, and, and truthfulness. Let me give you another point on evangelism that I see in this text is inspiration. One of the motives I think that we can have in reaching people is this, the prospect of someone's repentance. In other words, <clears throat> we imagine that loved one, that neighbor, that friend, becoming a Christian. That inspires us. Can you imagine what would happen if that individual turned to Christ for salvation? It's possible because this is what Jesus is doing. He's out there seeking and saving the lost. Here's another one is hope. We can be patient. We can be compassionate. We can be persistent because we know that we're not doing all the work ourselves. It's like bring your kid to work day. Dad's doing the work. Like we're just joining Jesus in this mission. We're not alone in it. And then finally, a thought about what this means for the church. Let's always keep evangelism as our top missional priority. We are good news people in a bad news world. 
What is the mission of Jesus Christ? Is it to make people simply more moral? Is it to get people to be more environmentally sensitive? Or even to get our candidate elected? Of course not. Jesus' mission is clear. He came to seek and save the lost. And so let's keep this at the heart of everything. Doesn't mean other things aren't important, but, but let's not get this twisted. We should think about what does this mean for our growth group? What does this mean for our corporate worship service? What does this mean with following up with, with guests? What does it mean for our prayers? What do it mean for events that we hold? Let's keep it evangelism at the heart of everything. Joining Jesus in this mission. And finally, the last takeaway is joy. It is fitting that God's people be marked by joy. As individuals and as a congregation, I often say that I think joy is one of the least valued leadership qualities. Who wants to be around a grumbling person all the time? <laughs> I tell church planners all the time, you might be able to preach, but if people don't like you, then you, you need to do that too, okay? You, you need to, to have a sense of joy and, and encouragement that, that is winsome and attractive. And I don't think that's just a very pragmatic principle. I think that's characteristic of Jesus himself. He was marked by joy. The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You see in this text an explosion of joy, don't you? The joy of angels, the joy of God himself, the joy of others. There's public joy. There's the dad throwing a party for his son that's that's turned home. It's fitting that we be joyful because we are being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And this is a powerful witness to a joyless world, to an empty world, to a world that finds only fleeting pleasures. And we can show them the solid joys of heaven. It's fitting that we be marked by joy. So, my friend, when was the last time you celebrated with great joy? And if it's been a while, let me me say to you, think on this. Little sheep, Jesus has put you on his shoulders and brought you home. Can you believe it, little coin? You've been found because he diligently sought after you. Can you believe it? Little son, you're welcomed. Welcomed home by your compassionate father. He throws a party. And even if you're in a time right now of grief, even if you're in a time of sadness, you have something that should give you joy. You're not lost. You've been found. You're not in your sins. You've been forgiven. You're not spiritually dead. You're alive. And very soon, all sadness will end. We only have a foretaste of the joy that awaits the rescued. And praise God, we've been rescued. Let's thank him for that. Father, what a privilege to call you Father. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you for seeking us like a shepherd seeks a lost sheep. 
like the lady seeks the lost coin. Thank you for receiving us when we turn from our sinfulness and rebellion and stupidity. I pray you would give us your heart. Give us your mission. May we be marked by joy. A joy that is not flippant, just emotional, but a solid joy that is rooted, that is deep, that even in times of sorrow we can find, we can find joy. Thank you that we have that in, in the gospel. Make us good news people in this bad news world, we pray. Deepen our gratitude even now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper. And we thank you for your word today. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.